1: Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview.
0: All right. Hello and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. And yes, I am working on a name that's easier to say, but that's what we have for right now. Uh, this is an interview interview content editor Jimmy Gasparro, and I am here tonight with uh, someone that I am very excited to talk to. Uh, She previously was a PR manager at Dark Horse Comics. She was also um, the director of publicity at Oni Press. Now, uh, she runs her own PR company, Don't Hide PR, and she has written a book, Heavy Metal Headbang, about an accident uh, she was involved in as a a pedestrian, and she suffered a traumatic injury as a result of it. And uh, she's here tonight to talk all about that. And I am just very excited that she's here with us. This is Melissa Mazaras. Melissa, uh, welcome.
2: (laughs) Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, um, so I was lucky enough to read Heavy Metal Headbang this past weekend. And um, I, I first wanna say, Um, It is, it's, it's a quick read um, and it is an excellent read. It is not uh, exactly what I expected. Not only, I mean, it does have the aspect of what happened to you um, and your recovery in that process, but it it is uh, there, there is so much more jam packed in, I I think 132 pages. It is uh, impressive. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of it and and read it um, because it it really is wonderful. And it's jam-packed with so many things, not just about Melissa, not just about you and your recovery, but a a lot of things that I think people are going to get a lot out of uh, reading this. Um, So rather than me just, you know, since we have you here, why don't you um, tell me a little bit more about uh, and our listeners about Heavy Metal Headbang?
2: Wow. I always say wow when people (laughs) open up the floor to me because I think, you know, each time my response is going to change. uh, And I try to like stick to the liner notes a little bit. But um, when people ask me like what the book is about, I like that you want the elevator pitch. That would be I was on my way to see Judas Priest. It was pizza week. I was crossing in an unmarked crosswalk in Oregon, which All crosswalks in the state of Oregon are considered legal crosswalks by, uh, you know, pedestrians and I got hit by a car (laughs) and I sustained a traumatic brain injury, as you said, don't mean to reiterate, but, um, yeah, that's what happened. Um, and I was out of it for a while, (laughs) but I'm still alive.
0: Yes, you are. Thankfully, um, you're still here and, Heavy metal headbang details um, not only your uh, recovery process, but you kind of go back and and hit certain you know points of um, of your life. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about early on, just to kind of um, as a starting point, is you describe yourself early on. I think in the book as a sardonic optimist, maybe um uh in in quotes there sardonic optimist maybe and you know what what did you mean by that like when you you see yourself what is what does that mean to you
2: well um i like to thank anthony bourdain for putting that in my brain a little bit uh because you know i think he i i've heard him say it before and i i really had to think about it but it more works like a double entendre and okay for me it's like about a approaching life with the general hope and expectation that everything will be okay, but with the wherewithal that knowing that things can go wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's how I would put it. I mean, I've had a decent chunk of bad luck in my life, and it's always been inadvertent. Uh, so I very rarely get angry. So the next best thing is like using that dark humor, aka the sardonic optimist in me to make light of bad situations. Um mm-hmm it doesn't hurt anyone. And honestly, it's like my way of chiding the universe without putting that bad energy out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah. That's why I think I'm a sardonic optimist. And I say maybe because I, I don't like labels. I don't like labeling myself. I, you know, if other people want to carry a badge, I'm like, I'll, I'm all for it. But for me, it's like, I'm like Groucho Marx. Like I don't want to belong to a club that have someone like me for a member.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic show quote um, um, so you know just to get into the writing of it a bit um and I wanted to talk about the structure of it because it, I you mentioned this in the book um in terms of you did a thesis and I think this was a thesis you did at Antioch University in Los Angeles on non-linear narrative so kind of what is it about that nonlinear narrative you know, structure that made you want to write a thesis? And then did you have that in your mind when you started to write and process everything that was going on after the accident? Or did you, you know, realize it later once you had composed all of all of this writing together? Did you come back to that and say, well, I, I, I have something here that I, I think I can put together in a way that, you know, I understand other people will understand because of you know your study of the nonlinear narrative in you know in writing.
2: Um, that's a loaded question. in ways. um I felt like I was writing two stories at the same time, one, basically to journal out my recovery, to because the process is so laborious and depressing and Mm -hmm. oppressive at the same time and the others were these vignettes of memories that i was getting when i was listening to music um and i had gone through you know i had journals and i was trying to go through journals and make cohesive sense of anything and nothing nothing registered so when i saw these two things come together in different ways. You know, I thought about it, like studying nonlinear narrative, which like 75% of my coursework at Antioch was nonlinear. It's like theory and examples. Um, I was most interested in the way that words appeared on the page, you know, like how art is curated in a gallery. Um, so I decided once I had so much writing, uh, completed that, you know, how can I, put this together in a way that could be somewhat cohesive, having all these tools in my toolbox. And I do owe a lot to my editors. I had two. Um, And even at first take though, it was kind of like, okay, you need to put a little bit more here. You need to move this there. So of course they played a huge role in that process as well.
1: Um,
2: Yeah. So, these two things would come together easily with line or page breaks or sentence segues as like a stream of consciousness, it's like like beat poetry in ways, even though I'm like not a beat fan. Oh. Yeah, I know. It, Interesting. I mean, did, did that answer your question?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, it did, it, it did. I, and something you mentioned in in the answer you know, to that loaded question of mine, um, you have a quote that really resonated with me uh, in terms of writing and in terms of uh, working through after the, the, the brain injury, the traumatic brain injury, you wrote, I wanted to remember my stories and what made me who I was, how I got there. And I, I, I'm, I'm someone that's fascinated with the idea of memory and why or the process of memory, why some memories stick and why some are kind of lost to time and how the ones that stick Make us who we are. So when you're, when music is triggering a memory, as you're trying to re- recover and as you're working on your recovery, um, did you learn, you know, more about yourself examining those memories as they resurfaced, uh, and and did you, you know, find that maybe in a, a therapeutic way or on some deeper level as you wrote about the recovering those memories and after the accident that um you were you know discovering other things not just actual memories but about you know yourself
2: yes and it still happens to this day um there I I lost many senses um I couldn't see for a long time I couldn't actually hear for a long time and when I could hear I couldn't delineate sounds it was just cacophonous Uh, so I couldn't listen to music for a very long time after the injury. Uh, I still have trouble with sense of smell and taste and, you know, sensory details are evocative to memory. That's just the basis of everything. But when I was able to kind of put pieces back together, when I was able to listen to music again, um, it was like, I didn't get to decide what memories were surfacing. Um, and it would come from dumb places, like, I don't want to admit that I know the lyrics to a Dave Matthews song, but that was, like, something, um, and I would hear, <laughs> I mean, I hate admitting it, I really do, because I go to uh, Pennsylvania, that's just, like, what they did, they, they followed Dave Matthews everywhere, yeah. and I was just <laughs> privy to that, because it was the only way I'm going to leave my parents' house, and... Um, right. You know, and little things like that. It's like music that I don't listen to. Like, wow. And like Alice in Chains was like the start of all of it. It kind of jump-started. And that that went through disassociation. I didn't even have the anticipation of conjuring anything. And I know that a lot of people kind of use music as a vehicle to kind of time travel in ways. I Mm -hmm. never really considered it be that and somebody had pointed out to me that you know Alzheimer's studies and playing their old music and how that helps conch I never considered that until like three months ago (laughs) so really never never and I just basically I always had been listening to music like there was not a single moment except I will say When I was leaving work to cross the street, I didn't have headphones in. But other than that, I was like on the train or on the bus, or I was like walking down a sidewalk, you know, I would always press pause when I would cross the street. So music was always playing. It was always omnipresent. It was always there. Um, But picking up things here and there that were unwarranted was very jarring to me because I was a blank slate. I basically was on autopilot. I could work. And, you know, to survive, that was like the only mechanism I had left was survival. And that's why I was able to work very, you know, over an extended period during the week. But I, that was the only thing that really, like, I knew I had to do it because I had to make money to pay bills and have a roof over my head. But everything else just kind of seemed like a moot point where it wasn't, you know, my brain went on this complete reserve. Um, It wouldn't, you know, like I said, it shut off a lot of my sensory details and memories and thoughts and feelings were not even an option. So when this invocation of hearing music and sparking a memory, sometimes I would break down and cry and I wouldn't know why, um, but I knew I was attuned to what was happening musically. So I would grab the song basically and just listen to it over and over and over and over again, even if I hated it. I'm like, what is this getting at? What is the point of this? Luckily, a lot of the music that did put me back together was music that I liked. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, had a, I had a few instances. And, and like I said, I, it still happens from time to time. Like if I'm out and I hear a song in the grocery store, I'm like, no, I don't want to be at my junior prom right now things like that. Like it's really mm-hmm. strong and very visceral because it's just that connectivity. And that's the thing with brain elasticity. And I'm so far in my recovery now that like most people with brain injuries say, Oh, I didn't notice my recovery. till I was like three and a half, four years, five years in that rings true. Um, oh, wow. but I, I'm still dealing with some setbacks there. They're a lot less, I would say like I'm 98% better. Okay. And yeah. But those songs, whew. Um, but working through, you know, was that therapeutic? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it was therapeutic because I knew I was getting parts of myself back. It was not therapeutic in the pretense that I had to feel everything that, uh, that happened all over again. Like it was at that moment.
1: Oh, like okay. I
2: would just be emotionally crushed like it had just happened. So I went through things that I was like 15 and 19 and 25 and 27. It basically, anytime like music would exacerbate feelings that I basically had to sit and synthesize and go through, you know, picked up trauma. That was the biggest thing is it was picking up trauma but it was also picking up like pivotal points in my life. It was very odd. It was very odd and it didn't come linearly either.
0: So it wasn't a situation where you would hear a song, it would spark a memory and, you know, as you're dealing with it and writing things down where you could kind of, you know, uh, objectively think about that past scenario, you're you're, you're also dealing with the actual mo- emotions from that moment in time. Oh, yes. Oh, know.
2: yes, it's, it was awful. It was awful. It was such a huge sense of displacement that I would not wish that on my worst enemy.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I really wouldn't. Because you're running on two planes at that point. You're running on autopilot to survive. You're dealing with a recovery. You're, while, you're, you know, while you're dealing with a recovery, you're dealing with legal retributions and stuff like that. But right. at, 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 on the other side, um, you're dealing with these emotions that you have already worked through and these instances that have come and gone. For such an extended period but to have them feel so tangible is a total like it, it just goes it crazy it's like crazy brain it, it really right. feels like you're working with a duality
0: yeah you had a word you have a phrase for it in your book i think that i i have you know I, as i read everything i i, I take notes because uh you know so i'll remember um and I think is that what you referred to as the space-time discontinuum, <laughs> uh, which I, I don't know if, if that's if you heard that somewhere, if that was used in therapy, or if that's no. an original Melissa Mazaris, But uh, that's, that's
2: an original. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's that. Not I mean, not only does it perfectly encapsulate what I think you d- just described, it 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 just sounds um it, it just it sounds like you know, something um, important. It it made sense to me in a way when you described it and that I knew exactly, you know, as close as someone who has not sustained that type of injury and had to work through it, as close as I could get to understanding, I felt like that phrase really, you know, um, did it justice. So, um, yeah,
2: thank you. No, no, that was, that was really like the only way I could pinpoint it. Because I said, I'm working with the left side and right side of my brain. Then we get into the semantics (laughs) of how the (laughs) brain actually works and the physiology and all that stuff. But I was like, no, this was a discontinuum. Like I was going, but I was stopping and I was doing two, I was living two different lives completely. I was living my autopilot life, which was my work life. I was basically centered around work and healing. And then I was living my past life all over again to a painful palpable reality that i i I kept it very hidden and and very quiet um i i I honestly like i didn't want anybody to know how much pain i was going through or the things that i was going through so i i had to sign up for therapy (laughs) i thought i was a loon like and not not to Um, judge anybody with mental illness or to ostracize them in any way or to point a finger. But like, it really made me feel because I know who I am, or I thought I did. Right. Um, It's, it's more or less, like, I felt like I was, there was like a a clear curtain that I could see through. And it was a mental and emotional separation. Um, so I gained a huge respect and love and understanding for people that have to deal with this every single day. Oh sure, I had no idea what that disassociation parallel could feel like right. until I had to go through it myself.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think uh, you know, no, no shame in going to therapy if you need it or 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 if it helps. And um, I, you know, but I certainly also understand you know uh, that that idea of being a a strong independent person and thinking i know who i am and i don't you know i don't need certain things and realizing that oh no i might need i might need help i might need to talk this out i might need some you know another another perspective um and if if there's one through line through heavy metal headbang um it's, you have a very strong sense of, you know, who you are or who you thought you were and and independence. Like there's almost a frustration in in your writing about, it, not just that you were hurt, but that now there's things you, you can't do and you have to rely on other people. I mean, do you oh, think yeah. that's fair to say?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I lost so much autonomy. Uh, yeah. Even, you know, from like having to sit in my shower with a plastic on a plastic chair you know that frustrated me i'm like i just need to stand but i couldn't stand without having my head up against the wall um you know losing responsibilities at work like that was i was the director of pr like losing responsibility oh no we're not you're not losing them we're we're delegating and i'm like you're not delegating you're not doing it right you know and i would do (laughs) you know things like that and i'm not calling myself a control freak i just had done what I had done for so long, for someone to tell me that I couldn't have so much put on a shoe correctly, really ticked me off. Um, and it, I am fiercely independent and I always have been, I was raised to be that way. And I didn't even ask for help. That was the thing, I, from the time I hit the ground, I did not understand the severity of the situation, nor was I aware that I would actually need help. I didn't think to you know, get a lawyer, I didn't think to, um, you know, have, that I had to go to therapy. I didn't think about like how I, I, I didn't even understand that I was, you know, sick, uh, that I had a brain injury that I, <laughs> nothing. I was just wow. like, Nope, I'm going to see Judas priest, get the heck out of my way. That's just how it's <laughs> going to be. I'm, I was just really adamant about everything. And I really did struggle a great deal with my own identity uh, one, because I, I, like, like you had said, yes, I did know who I was. I knew where I was going. I kind of did anyway. Um, but knowing where I'd been or how I got there was total misstep. And that was the most confusing. Um, so, you know, I'm still in therapy, (laughs) not going to lie. I actually really, really, really love it. Uh, because I am still going through a lot of these things on top of the things, you know, in the footnotes of the book in the afterwards. So, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and so, and we're coming up on and the accident was April of 2018. So we're, we're
2: April coming 17th. Up on yeah.
0: Four years.
2: Four years.
0: Um, <laughs> so what's the, uh, I, I want to ask, even though you said uh, you're, uh, it, you're embarrassed by it. What, what is the Dave Matthews song you do know? Uh, all the words to
2: <laughs> crash into me and okay. busted stuff yeah
0: well <laughs> I, I mean you, you, people of a certain certain age uh you <laughs> cannot avoid knowing all the words to that no, song because it, it was at our everywhere
2: dances and it played yeah. in restaurants and it played in grocery stores and you know i just happened to like pick it up uh from watching a movie one day right and, and i was just like no, I don't want this. And I would actually say that to myself when things started coming back and I'd be like, no, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. I don't want this memory. I don't want it. I don't want it. And I would say it over and over again, but it was like, <laughs> it's like, nope, mic drop. We're done. You're gonna wow. deal with this. I mean, but it was like that every single time, oh. every single time. Um, like I can't hear Green Day's good riddance without thinking about, you know, the, the last episode of Seinfeld And you, you read the book, so you know what happened leading up to that. And that was like, that was another mic drop. And I, I was in like the grocery store one day and that started playing. And I was like, no, I don't want this. I don't want this back. And, and you can't pick and choose your memories. That's it's, it's like the reverse of the eternal sunshine. It's really bad, but I I think in like the grand scheme in the larger picture, I think You know, I believe in in lessons and purpose and the universe and all that woo-woo stuff. I do. I do. Now. I didn't before. Um, But I think what my brain was trying to do was reprogram itself to realize, one, what was important to me, two, what I was doing wrong, and three, what I could do better. You know? Sorry. Was that a mic drop? (laughs) No. No, I
0: mean, that... I'm, I'm 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 fascinated. I mean I, I I I'm honest when I say I love the book and I was been excited to talk to you about it and it's um no I mean I think what you're saying makes you know a lot of sense and it's um you know you go through something like that I mean it's just, uh, you know your doctors tell you you have a traumatic brain injury and the things you have to do and you know it's fascinating you, you I don't think people uh, who have never dealt with it or haven't known someone that's gone through something like that don't understand how fragile the mind is, but also like the brain as a physical organ. And when it goes through trauma, what that can do. Mm -hmm. Um, so no, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a great answer. I think, um, I, you know, appreciate you being as open and honest about everything that's you've gone through and what it's taken, you know, to kind of get through that process and still having to deal with some things almost, you know, four years later. Um, yeah. So one of the things you've talked about in terms of the music, and I know that day of the accident, you were on your way to Judas Priest concert. Um, and it's some of the other bands, you know, you mentioned, you talk about the Melvins and um, some bands that I, you know... I, haven't necessarily been my thing, um, m- metal, heavy or otherwise. Um, but I'd really love to hear some of the bands that you really, once you were able to listen to music again, what what were those bands? What was that music that kind of helped bring you back, that helped spark some of those memories and to help you again, create connections to some of those memories? Uh, well,
2: mostly it was a lot of stuff that I listened to growing up. Um, I listen to a lot of grunge and so much that I realized recently that my healing process is continuing in the home of grunge. Um, I felt that was very necessary to me. And everybody thinks it's Seattle. It's actually Olympia, Washington, where grunge was born. So that's where I am now. And the the beauty of that is that I can go out and I can walk down the street. Like Today, I I took my dog for a walk, Uh, Kurt Cobain, where he wrote 75% of his catalog for Nirvana his life's work is a 15 minute walk from my apartment. It's like eight blocks. And some days I'll just walk up there. And today I passed a restaurant and they were playing screaming trees. So to me, it's like living in the Mecca. Um, If I were to pick specific songs, I wouldn't even know outside of like Alice in Shane's nutshell was a big one for me. Um, "Mazzy stars fade into you. Um, Yeah. I mentioned green day. I mentioned Dave Matthews. Um, it took a really long time. Oh, silver chairs open fire is a big one for me. That's a huge one. And like, honestly, like anything that meant something to me to some degree, when I was a teenager, I don't know what it was about those, those formative years, I guess they're considered formative years. (laughs) Uh, um, it just really pulled me back into a lot of th- that self discovery. And I think that's what it was about. It was just looking at all the directions of the music I was li- listening to and why it might have made me who I, had, you know, you know what I mean? Like why it was important to me then. Right. And ironically enough, it was just as important working in the media, like when I listened to, I, I named three albums, um, in the book, uh, namely Whole Celebrity Skin, uh, Marilyn Manson Mechanical Animals. Marilyn Manson is on my crap list right now, by the way. Um, so I don't like to mention him, but <laughs> I digress. And Nine Inch Nails, um, The Fragile. And they're all about how, you know, at the time we were at the turn of when everything was going digital, and everybody was trying to figure out how the record companies are going to survive. And they're doing tours and they're doing junkets and they're doing award shows and all this other stuff. But I listened to those albums when they came out. I was like, oh, The Last of the Rock Stars" is really amazing. And now I listened to it when I was going through my recovery. And the things that I was feeling because of the situation I was currently in with my job and the frustration and not having the autonomy that I used to have and ultimately you know the merger I was so angry and that was the only thing that actually could make my anger uh I could I could I guess I could understand it better because I, I okay. didn't really understand the emotion so I had to connect it back but that helped me do that um Cause a lot of the time I would just be sitting in, in like detention, <laughs> like, <laughs> sitting at home and just like listening to these albums on my headphones and sitting on the school bus and, you know, anywhere where I could hide, you know, an earphone, you know, you used to like break it apart and like stick it up your sleeve and then like lean on it in class. <laughs> I did, but I, feel, right. you know, I, I was so quiet about my feelings then and I was, still somewhat quiet about my feelings especially going through this trauma um yeah it, it was just like anything that i could connect to that made any pathway to where i had landed made sense or made a new version of sense to me yeah i didn't wow. mean to go off on a diatribe there but i did
0: no no you're fine i i asked the question and this is where uh <laughs> this is where it leads so no i um Do do you find now that you're still going back to some of, you know, that music that sparked those memories that meant something to you that helped you process current emotion by connecting, you know, with that version of you sitting in detention and was feeling maybe the same uh, emotion, whether or not it was anger or, or, you know, sadness or whatever it might have been, or are you able to, you know, um, listen to newer music to to find things that you like now or do you find that your musical tastes are still with the last of the rock stars which is a fantastic phrase and uh, probably accurate
2: (laughs) i i honestly think that it is stuck it is stuck with the last of the rock stars um and that's not intentional like i can listen to stuff that's new to me Mm -hmm. uh so like when i say that like Mother Love Bone is something that I just recently picked up after moving here. Uh, uh, I I don't know why my, my brain doesn't allow it. And it's not to say that I don't want it. It's just when I listen to new stuff, if it, it, I don't get that same feeling that I get when I'm hearing things that can evoke something. Um, I'm still trying to bring myself back to ground zero. And if I, You know, if I throw something new in the mix, great, but it's going to take a lot of effort because going back to sensory detail, like I can taste now, I can smell somewhat, but I really have to focus. So like the other day, I like posted uh, that I really wanted my mom's sloppy joes. (laughs) So she like sent me the recipe. I was making them and I have to really focus and say, I'm making sloppy joes. I'm making my mom's sloppy joes this is what it smelled like back then I can remember is this what it smells like and I kind of I really have to focus do I smell this do I smell this do I taste this? it's the same thing like with music to me um I can walk in and shazam something that I like but then I realize oh it's the cramps and I've heard this album you know 20 years ago but then I'm like well, I'll give it a shot and I'll listen to it again but no nothing nothing new it's very hard it's very hard oh wow yeah um or I could just be like a stubborn and old.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that you were, uh, you know, uh, making something. I was, that was, food's a big part of my life. And I was, I I totally, the one part of heavy metal headbang, I, I could not in any way find any connection to was your um, relationship to food, which you said was, you know, kind of both before and after the accident was, um, uh, seemed to be very minimal. So good for you for, making the the sloppy joes how did they turn out
2: they turned out well but i was i was telling someone else who was going to make them i said whatever you use don't use mustard from a bottle use the dry mustard (laughs) i was like it kind of has like a little vinegary taste and i there was this spice called accent that i never heard of apparently it's like 19 it's like like 1970s and apparently it's like sodium glutamate or something odd i was like yeah that sounds like you know, the jello era for sure. And I just left oh, that okay. out. I, was, I don't think it had any impact, but it was kind of nice because they had the same elasticity that, you know, that my mom's had. So they weren't like all milky, like Manwich, which I tried Manwich first and I was like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> so, but it's like that with everything. But no, like even before, I wasn't, I was a foodie. Um, but my diet was like mean cuisine and all and granola bars and that was even before the head injury because i just didn't have time i just didn't i didn't care about eating i never really cared about eating so um yeah
0: that that's mainly what i was referring to in terms of you know that uh you because you talk about that in heavy metal headbang um
2: oh it has to be an event like yeah you know me when i say i'm a foodie like it has to be an event like i would go to um like food tastings that would be like seven courses And it would be like a one night pop up or something like that. Or um, my friends know that like we would go to my favorite restaurant down in Portland and we would just get tapas. Uh, It would really be centered around that. And it would be like maybe once or twice a year. But other than that, I just really don't care. Like I'll recycle things and I'll put them in my freezer. And it's like it's sustenance at that point.
0: Yeah and for anyone listening that's curious um and I, because i was just wanted to confirm i did i did look it up accent is the american uh, monosodium glutamate so um uh <laughs> probably a staple of every pantry in 1975 <laughs> so and um, um i'm sure they're still cranking it out today um,
2: probably yeah
0: yeah probably well-
2: Thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah. no I, problem. But you don't need it in my mom's sloppy Joe recipe, which is on my Twitter feed if you really want it.
0: Yeah, love sloppy Joes. Um, so now talk to me now, though, about um, going out on your own. Talk to me about don't hide PR. What finally brings you um, to do that? And then also within, within that question, I, I was curious, t- Going and promoting now heavy metal headbang and having to, you know, market yourself as opposed to um, doing this for a client. Uh, Have there been particular challenges to you to promoting heavy metal headbang or is like PR, all PR, marketing, all PR, uh, all marketing? Hmm. Um,
2: So the reason why it was never my intention to start Don't Hide. Uh, It was. You know, I think it was inadvertent prior to the fact because what I was doing was freelance work because I had lost my job in the merger. I had took, taken the summer off because I was like, I just need to heal. I need to just not do anything and just, okay, we're just going to chill for a minute. And when, when I said, what do I do next to myself? I'm like, do I go on to tattoo school? Uh, do I just go and find a normal job? I tried both. Um, I went to tattoo school finished could not pass that test to save my life couldn't pass the state test always just just couldn't make it always made a 74 you need a 75 to pass so I said forget it because uh, my brain just doesn't work that way. it doesn't understand ABC true false um, okay. and that and, and, and that was before the injury too it's just being flat out stubborn. Uh, and you know what people were saying, i i would be open to work with you if you were willing to like go freelance or did you consider freelance so i was talking to mark irwin who was at insight comics at the time and he offered me a a really amazing opportunity to work on the david bowie book by mike allred and steve horton and i oh i can't turn this down i can't turn this down and especially with the clout that mark has in the industry and all of his history being, being an artist, um, it just seems like it's a no brainer. Um, pun intended. And then I got approached by, uh, mad cave studios and it just kind of built itself up. And, you know, I done this, I was doing this for about six months under the radar. And then it was like, you know what? After like trying to do a job that I was under fluorescent lights and hating my life forever and ever, uh, I was just like, now you know what? <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come out and say like I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna move into PR. I'm just gonna do PR full time for comics because honestly, like it's what I truly am passionate about. It changed uh, to me. It was never just a job. It was it was something that I was always passionate about. It was always something that didn't feel like going to work ever. It always felt like I get to go hang out with my friends and it still feels that way. And I appreciate that. Uh, and that's not really something that you can overlook and, and, and you have to realize how lucky you are to have that advantage because not many people get that advantage. Oh, sure. Um, so um, the challenges though with Running Don't Hide and It's Solo, it's a solo venture um, and you have to think about not just the clients themselves. Uh, you have to think about contracts. You have to think about um, taxes. You have to think about overhead. You have to like, and I suck at math. I'm just terrible at it. <laughs> and um, you know, but I, I think that, you know, as long as I have a roof over my head and I'm, I'm happy, I don't need much. And I, I love promoting people's passions. That's what it sticks with. But when it comes to heavy metal headbang, I felt like it was, my job was just never ending when I had to do PR and not even, you know, for myself. I mean, I had other publicity people working on it, but it's it's a very different animal when you decide to move into different realms of entertainment as per PR. And as it goes with any PR, like you can, you have specialties, you have IT, you have environmental, you have music, you have film. There is some crossover in entertainment, yes, but books, oh, good Lord, books and comics are not synonymous in the slightest. Um, I was, I was talking to a book publicist in Portland and they had said to me that I had missed the window to do PR for the book. <laughs> and and they gave me some advice and they were like just just do this just do that you know how to do the job you shouldn't have to hire anybody and they said wasn't well, it considered a faux pas to do your own PR I've been fortunate enough that I maybe did a couple of solicits out um got some positive feedback but I really owe it to you know people in the comics industry being so supportive that's like really the foundation of the success of the book i feel so I'm, I'm grateful i'm so grateful um and i owe it to the people that have given me blurbs um uh, in advance um along also a lot of them are in comics but also like damian Eccles from the west memphis three bless his heart and jeff Krulik, who actually directed the movie heavy metal parking lot that was about a judas priest um you know pre-show so Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it's it's it, it is kind of challenging though having to balance the two because they still deal with the injury I still get very tired I still have shorter days I still have uh longer timelines uh like I'll work on Saturdays and Sundays because if I get tired I have to listen I I hate that I hate that like today um yeah I had to take a walk because when my brain Literally say it's done. It's mm-hmm. done. It's like no, you're not going to process a single thing if you keep trying. Uh, so you need to take a step back. And whether it could it could be an hour, it could be three hours, it could be twelve hours. I don't I don't get to pick and choose. So that is the bonus of you know having don't hide that I could work on my own schedule. But having to do heavy metal headbang, the book tour killed me. It really (laughs) mentally, emotionally, physically killed me. And that was two weeks ago. This is the first interview I've done post that actually. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That has to be a lot. Uh That has to be a lot for somebody who has never suffered any injury in the past (laughs) to have to do a book tour, um, and continually sell yourself. Well, I, I, again, really appreciate you being here and, and talking to me. Um, action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now I, I want you know i wanted to ask you though uh to to talk about in terms of pr in terms of comics like what um what was kind of your early relationship to comics? You know, if, if you had one, did you like comics as a kid? Did you come to comics later? Um, oh yeah,
2: yeah. I always loved comics as a kid. We didn't, we didn't have a proper comic book shop. We had a bookstore, so I would buy like Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I would pick up licensed properties like The Simpsons at the grocery store because I wasn't allowed to watch the television show. Um, little things like that here and there. Uh, right. What really got me though. Um, much to the dismay of my parents, I was really interested in the San Francisco underground comics when I turned about 15. And those were not easy to come by. I think what I used to do is when we had dial up, I would print them out, And like Johnny, the homicidal maniac. I would just print them out uh, <laughs> oh, wow. from the internet. And I know it's so crazy. Um, But I, you know, because I was working in music at so young, in PR, like started at 17. And then I moved on to film. And I did like odd jobs in between then because entertainment doesn't always pay until you can prove your work. Um, I didn't get into comics until, you know, I was 30, 30, 30, wow. Um, Yeah, and I was working in film before that. So it was because of... But having the opportunity won because Dark Horse didn't want to hire me on the first shake because I had more experience than their head publicist at the time. <laughs> so when they left, they hired. They actually came back to me and hired me on. And um, it just kind of stayed that way after. It, the piece is connected because I actually was working on a comic myself at the time. And I didn't ever have the anticipation, just like with this book, I never had the anticipation of publication. Um, and I was, like, writing and drawing it just as, like, you know, I had it scripted and everything. It wasn't good. I mean, I'll admit that. And some people are like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, yeah, you're telling me it's bad. I get it. But <laughs> uh, it was an appreciation for the medium that I've always had. And I have, like, more of a penchant for nerds than anything, because nerds to me are, like, the softest, sweetest people in the whole world. And I have been, like with nerds my whole life (laughs) like we went to conventions as kids and stuff so
0: oh cool that's awesome um what would you tell i mean what do you tell prospective clients or i guess maybe the way i want to ask this is what do you think that even small independent comic creators don't understand or don't realize about hiring or having a, a pr person like what's the cost benefit analysis that you think maybe some you know even smaller or other independent creators aren't really doing when they set out to do a crowdfunding campaign or or try and market themselves or their or their their comic is there anything that you see continually that you wish you know creators understood or creators had more knowledge of
2: i would speak in terms of how things look in house I'm, okay. not di- I'm not. I'm not going to diss in-house um, marketing teams. Um, they just get the short end of the stick because their departments are very small and their resources are somewhat limited in the capacity that they have because their catalog is so saturated. So they're directed to work on usually um, licensed properties that publishers dump a lot of money into. So. It's not always a benefit to get published under a publisher. You have your distribution, yes. However, what that does is just simply put your books out. If they're not being marketed, they're not going to sell. You are your biggest advocate for one. And if you can do direct distribution, you know, with how massive the internet is, um, being a part of the community is absolutely integral to your success. And also believing in what you're putting out. Um, In addition to that, where PR comes in in ways of that, I always tell people uh, when they hire me on, it's usually I get hired by someone who has something with a publisher and they don't trust the internal to give it the life that an independent can give it. Or um, when you're independent, you're doing a Kickstarter. um, It never hurts because I like to tell people I'm giving you the tools so you don't need me someday. That's how I view it. And whether you move on to a publisher or you successfully can independently release things on your own, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm simply a conduit. That's all I am. I have worked in entertainment for so long and I know how it functions and the functionality of it, but the basis, the core rule that I stand by is that kindness is everything and having Altruism, not only with yourself but with the people you approach, and believing in what you're doing and really being passionate about what you're doing is everything. Um, lastly, the people that if you're gonna crap on somebody, you're gonna meet that person in another time, <laughs> and you don't know where they're gonna be in that in their success. So don't yeah. do it. Don't do it. That's why I say kindness is everything. Like we're not in this to uh how do i put this we are not in this to fight each other we're here to support each other it's a community Mm -hmm. i really feel like nobody should be mean or getting at somebody else's throat or anything like that it's like no like everybody's in this together it's a really cool environment it's a cool sandbox to be playing in but if you can't play nicely take your shovel and go home you know yeah
0: no, I, I, I agree. I, um, just reminded me for some reason, I, I think one of my favorite panel from the, from her favorite page from the comic from saga, Brian K Vaughan and, and Fiona Staples saga. There's a, a panel where, uh, the daughter is talking to Marco says, you know, talking about what what, what she go, going to be and, and something along those lines but i remember marco responses like, he says something and I'm, I'm paraphrasing i can't remember it exact but it's like kid i don't care whatever you are as, as, as long as you're kind it's one of the you know toughest things to be as an adult um right or and i i always that always stuck with me because i i think that's kindness is key i think that's a, a good philosophy to have um
2: right and and taking accountability for everything taking accountability. Even if you make a mistake, you own up to it and you learn from it uh, because being completely honest with yourself and others is how you keep the peace, you know, all across the board.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, so, you know, I wanted to take it back as something that you had brought up and um, in the book itself, and I wanted to talk to, talk to you about is that you you mentioned a few times throughout heavy metal headbang about um, like after the fact I think of your accident finding out others who had been involved in an accident whether or not it was uh, you know as a pedestrian or um you know in a motor in a on a bike and hit by a car um and you had mentioned about if there were things being done or if, if things are being done to change, you know, the laws in in Portland, where this happened, in the state of Oregon, to kind of make things safer for pedestrians or to kind of deal with some of the difficulties you had in terms of, you know, after the fact with going through the legal system and the the civil lawsuit. I mean, can you talk to me about that? Have you seen any changes being done because of the number of, of accidents in particular, pedestrian accidents that, that occur?
2: Absolutely not. And it's hard because the state of Oregon is owned by insurance companies and they feel, you know, when they give you, uh, you know, they give you like $15,000 automatically if you are involved in an MBA. Um, and that's to alleviate some of the medical costs that are accrued. It doesn't do mm-hmm. anything. Um and honestly, it's kind of offensive because when the police department is not taking care of, pac- you know, people who are paying taxes and being good citizens, and you know, writing scant reports, um, and whether that had anything to do with my appearance or whether that had something to do with the person who had hit me, and I have no idea. Right. Um, it's painful for me because not because of what I went through, but because it's it's an epidemic and it's a problem. And I don't think that it's properly addressed in the slightest. And then, uh, you know, what happened with a person that I deeply cared about and loved and knowing that they had passed away as a result of something happening like this, absolutely negligent, that there was no case on it, that uh, his friends were left to crowdfund for him to get you know support and that's not fair it means it means that the legislation's not doing their job but then you know i know i am being careful with what i'm saying because Mm -hmm. (laughs) i know (laughs) i i I understand that everybody oh god this it, it 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 breaks my heart i i just can't even there's nothing that can be done. I really feel like there is nothing that's going to sway this because the legal system and attorneys, um, whether they're in-house or out of house, you know, it's about survival on all sides, but, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to be honest that like they, when I, I was applying for disability, I just wanted short term. Because I lost my job and I was like, I don't know what to do. And they told me, guess what? You make too much money for disability. And I said, what does that even mean? Like, like, oh, well, if you can watch a security camera, you can do a job. So I kind of told, I was like, but there's a lot of setback here. And, and the thing with the, the legal side, you know, not even, not even covering my medical bills. Not even the, the insurance company didn't even take care of that. They said, we don't have what, what we owe you. And we're never going to have what we owe you. So take it or leave it. You'll be screwed otherwise. And that was really heart wrenching and unfair because all I could do was think about how this happens to other people constantly. Like I'm fine with getting screwed. I'm used to it. I can handle it, but. The fact that i can't change it for other people if i had the opportunity to do it let this book be it and right. that was one of my main intentions for publishing it
0: yeah and i mean you, but you shouldn't have to be fine with with getting screwed as you say um you know the the you know they're our criminal justice system but our civil system as well our uh, you know the 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 insurance system in this country—it's—it's—it's it's all exceedingly complex. Um, I say that as somebody who works, you know, as as an attorney when I'm not interviewing creators, and I and I do understand, um, but I have clients a lot who still have, you know, have insurance or who have been involved in an accident, but still don't um, you, you find it difficult to navigate the complexities of the system and it's not on them because sometimes it doesn't have to be as complex as it is um but yeah that's it was uh it was heartbreaking to read some of those things that you had to go through and deal with and and some some odd things that uh one of the things that stuck with me was i think in the the police report or police incident report there was something, I, I don't have your book open in front of me, but th- that said you were uncooperative or something along those lines, yeah. which was kind of shocking. You had just I, gotten hit by a car. I was, I
2: was, I was on, I was responsive and uncooperative,
0: <laughs> responsive yeah. and uncooperative, which, um, I
2: prob- like I said, like, shocking. I know, I know full well, I was like, I'm going to see Judas Priest. So like, I know that. And, and I think, you know, I, yeah. I say this in the book too, but like, I do remember waking up on the road and the, and when the paramedics got there, they were like, where are you? And because I had moved so many places at the time, it didn't register where I was. I was like, Portland, duh, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because it's it, that's the sardonic optimism in me. Uh, <laughs> I guess if we're going to bring it full circle, but um, that's, that's honestly just my approach. It's like, well this is dumb that you're standing over me and it's even dumber than I'm laying in the road i'm on my way i got to go somewhere you're just getting right. in the way so um maybe that was the spo- the response that the, that was the takeaway <laughs> from from the police department but honestly like and and to be forthright the my attorney reached out to the police there was somewhere upwards of 15 or 16 eyewitness accounts that the police didn't even follow up on and they didn't contact my attorney. And the police report also stated, I believe, not verbatim, not for sure. I haven't looked at the paperwork in a long time, Mm -hmm. but that the accident had taken place a block up prior to actually like where it was.
1: Oh, okay. Because I had to walk...
2: I had to go through that again with the private eye. Like I, my attorney had to hire a private eye and there were no cameras and there was no nothing. And we just kind of had to go through everything. And like, this is where I had to go through with like uh, my coworkers and this is where she was laying. I put my crack on this and I put my knee on this crack. And I know because I was here kneeling and this is within the crosswalk parameters. And it was just so convoluted and it was so ridiculous. And honestly, like my coworker said, like, you know, I think you would have you know, anybody would have driven off had you not been blocking their car. <laughs> and I wouldn't put it past the person who hit me at all. At least wow. from my what I know from their somewhat charming demeanor, uh, or you know, as 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 a joke more or less. But um yeah. from what I've heard and, and witness accounts from other people that this was not the nicest person. I was an inconvenience, you know. But unbelievable. Well, like I said, I don't. I don't play that. I don't play that. Um, yeah. And if somebody's going to be a jerk to me, it's only going to make me kinder to somebody else because it's not going to do me any justice to be mean. It's not. Right. It's not, not going to help if I'm mad at them or if I'm mad at somebody else because of what they did. It doesn't matter. If there's just no point.
0: Um, to kind of um, you know, and I don't want to keep you you know too long. I'm very uh, uh, grateful as long as you're able to spend, but I'll 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 keep talking through the wee hours, uh, Melissa. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask, uh, you know, because we talked about music and you, you talked a little bit in terms of you know comic books, but I'm always curious in terms of what are the, you know, what are the the other things that have influenced you maybe to write heavy metal headbang, or maybe, you know, before and after in terms of, you know, things that mean something to you, whether or not it's a movie or, or TV or, uh, you know, theater. Um, and also in particular, you know, in terms of that sardonic optimism, um, you know, what, what makes you laugh? I'm just curious about those, you know, those types of things, uh, and whether or not they did wind their way into Heavy metal headbang one way or another.
2: The things that make me laugh are dad jokes and like classic slapstick humor. (laughs) Like I get such a laugh riot out of like Mark's Brothers movies. And I love like Golden Girls and I love Welcome Back Cotter, which Welcome Back Cotter, I will comment, is the original Saved by the Bell. Don't argue with me on this because it's so factual. Oh Y'all... yeah,
0: no, I I won't. <laughs> Welcome back, Cotter's fantastic. <laughs>
2: it's so good, but like, I mean, it's just the classic style of humor. And even like, I would go as far as like saying Jim Gaffigan. Like Jim Gaffigan is like, or or like, he's like the one person that could that doesn't have to swear in a comedy bit, and he still manages yeah. to make it so hilarious. Yeah, his, his,
0: his yeah, his most recent special on Netflix was very good. I I thought it was very funny. Um but yeah, I, I liked Welcome Back Cotter too. Uh, my uh speaking of Welcome Back Cotter and dad jokes, I was a very serious student in high school. Um took myself and school very seriously. I went to a private Catholic school in Wilmington, Delaware, and I was late for school for some reason, and my dad had to take me. And he wrote me a note, you know, you needed a note to go to the principal's office and he dropped me off and I drove off and I, I handed the note in and the, um, administrator at the principal's office looked at me and then handed me back that note and it said, please excuse Jim for being late. Jim's dad. (laughs) And I was like, did he just do a welcome back Cotter joke in high school? Oh my
2: gosh. I got a note. I got a note. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) I wish nice. that you had like had that note and had it oh. framed but I know that they like put him like in your permanent record whenever they I know put the notes.
0: I I wish I kept it that would have be a great thing to put like in my on my office wall please excuse Jim Jim's he was late today Jim's dad
2: <laughs> Oh my gosh that's hol- I I think you were like one of the only people I've spoken to in a very long time that under that like understands the show where they can make a reference like that. Like I am such a fanatic. Like I have like a vintage t-shirt. I have the dolls. I have the classroom. Oh. Like wow. I have hardcore like DVD box set. I actually like have it on my Amazon like as purchased. Except season five. No, no, I don't like season five. But I don't think anybody does. I think season four was pushing it, and I really—I'm sorry—I'm going on this. I'm—I'm I'm going to say it out loud. The—the the episode where it all changed, the whole scope of the show, was when they went to the museum. And the guy who had played, uh, the dad in Adam's family—I can't think of his name. He was. Oh, a,
0: uh, John Aston.
2: Yes, he was the museum curator. And I was like, oh, the first time I take him out of the classroom, it's all to to the pits. And then, yeah, and I feel like that was like the moment where everything changed for the show, but took it with a grain of salt. And then Barbarino goes and he becomes an orderly or something, or a nurse. It's like how, I mean, the things that they were like talking about, like Hotsi Totsi, like what she was doing for work. Yeah. And like Horshack having a drinking problem. I'm like, this is great. Like, I feel bad for people who have to walk past my apartment because I don't own a television. I, there's no room for one. So I do have a, a projector and I have my nightshades. So I will like pull down the nightshades and show Welcome Back Cotter on my projector. <laughs> so maybe the people and, you know, walking past mm-hmm. my apartment can see it. Sorry. <laughs>
0: oh that's too funny
2: level of obsession is disgusting but that makes me laugh uh, that makes me happy um
0: patty smith is, is,
2: is, is a big one too yeah okay so, more minor than welcome back cotter but still
0: yeah Um, oh, that's fantastic um yeah i could go from welcome back cotter to golden girls um is another favorite with me, so that's great. Uh, well, that was a fun divergence. <laughs>
2: Sorry. Well, I'm I'm just now getting through season three of Mash, so. We can...
0: <laughs> oh, Mash! So oh good. man, yeah, Mash is Mash is excellent, but um, that's a that's a that's a rough watch at times. They they hit you with some surprise episodes that uh, you got to be ready for.
2: Yeah, and it also bothers me. I understand why they don't put the laugh tracks in the surgery tent, but still, like, it could help a little bit—just a little bit. No laugh it, tracks.
0: Yeah. Did you ever no, notice
2: that? Did you ever? No, notice? I don't know that I did. There's, yeah, no la- then, there's no laugh tracks in the surgery tent. Ever. I don't
0: know if I've ever noticed that. Oh wow. Now I'm gonna have to next time I watch Mash, I'll have to pay attention. Um, I, I did want to point out since this is. Uh, technically, um, a, a comic podcast. You talk about in, uh, famous folks at one point from your hometown, um, uh, including one of the most uh, famous persons uh, you've probably never heard of, uh, which I'll, I'll 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 save that for people who, to go and read the book because it's actually a fascinating story. Um, but you also mentioned, um, I think Trent Reznor was from your hometown oh, in the yeah. book, and uh, and I was looking up. And doing my own research and I think that Jack Cole the creator of Plastic Man was from your hometown as well um the now now so shout out to the now um sadly deceased Jack Cole and Plastic Man
2: Oh, from Monongahela yeah I mean that's a little bit further east but yeah definitely I actually just was talking to to someone else uh last two weeks ago and I found out that Dave Grohl grew up like 30 minutes away from where I grew up. And there's like an alley dedicated to Dave Grohl. Uh, I know it's super random.
0: Dave, Dave Grohl <laughs> alley. That's wonderful. There is,
2: I, like I'm, I'm going to send you a picture of this because it's hilarious. It's so, And they just try so hard. And then, of course, there's yeah, Marilyn Manson, whom of which mm-hmm. I have a discrepancy with at the moment. Sure. Uh, and you know he he was from Canton which is about it's it's south of Akron which all those places you live on the east coast so you know it's like
0: yeah you know, i i grew up in delaware county hour. yeah so. i grew up in i grew up in delaware county uh, just south of philadelphia and now i'm right over the border in north wilmington delaware so
2: you have the accent i appreciate it oh i lost mine 15 15 years of living on the west coast will do that but if I have too much kava, I could I could bust out some, you know, banana and home and <laughs> mom. Right. <laughs>
0: like- yeah, it, it's it's funny. Like, uh, it, it, you know, when Mayor of Easttown was on with Kate Winslet, it was like a real big deal. Everyone on the radio or everyone were like, oh, did you hear Kate Winslet trying to do the Delco, Marcus Hook type of accent? Because that's, I mean, it was sh- like part of it was shot, right where i grew up and you don't realize it it's one of those things where i'm like i don't have an, I, I don't have an accent it's not that hard to do but then you i we i do have we have like there's like a a, a friend's group that are, there's six of us and um you can easily point out which of the six it's not me uh i won't say who it is but you can point out which of the six has the most delco accent and so like w- when i watched the show and then heard this one friend speak. I was like, "Oh, now I get it." Okay, I, I hear it in myself, but I hear that that somebody else, you know, really has it. But it's
2: I get excited like whenever like I hear Jimmy Pop from the Bloodhound Gang talk. I'm like, "Oh, home! <laughs> <I'm> like, oh, <laughs> home! We're good." Yeah, I That's mean, it's funny. home. It's, it's home now. It's not home. Right? But- <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I uh, someone started a, a friend of mine had start who's from this area too. It started a new job. And uh, they are, were on a big conference call, um, you know, virtually it was during the pandemic. And they said something and like out of nowhere, one of their coworkers, like, you know, in another state or whatever said, are you from Delco? And I, I said, I said, did, what did you, did you say? Did you say water or did you say Monday? And he's like, I said, oh, water.
2: Oh, <laughs> you're like down seller and spigot and
0: oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, my yeah. my kids, my my two girls, they make fun of my mom. Um, depending on what she says, they're like, "My mom, you say Monday, it's Monday." My mom, you say <laughs> Acami, you say Acami. That- yeah, it's <laughs> accents are funny. Um, yeah. well, um, just to wrap up. Um, so other than all the amazing things you do with Don't Hide PR or do you plan on writing anything else? Do you you ever see yourself maybe making a comic or doing something else with heavy metal headbang or writing, you know, another book?
2: Yeah, Um, actually there's a graphic novel adaptation in the works. Um, Ooh, that's
0: exciting.
2: Yeah, I can't divulge too much information. Okay. Um, But that is a work in progress um there's also a director overseas that expressed interest in making a documentary um and that is that that got its treatment and it's kind of being shopped right now so i don't i i know entertainment well enough i don't count my chickens before they're hatched because things can go into production and never see the light of day it's like i know how it works so i don't you know get my hopes up and as far as writing goes uh I wrote a piece in Scarletine that posted last month before um, the release of the book. It was like a week before release, maybe it was a couple days before, um, that was about, it's called Heavy Metal Heartbreak was the name of the editorial. And I started working on a second piece of writing that's kind of like the sister piece to Heavy Metal Headbang. Um, it's It's been very, very, very hard to write. I started working on it last July, but I think I'm still too close to the matter, the material, to see it objectively. Um, but I'm still healing from all that pain and the unfolding layers, and that's in in the right. uh, that's in the epilogue of the book or like the the, the afterward. Um, and I mean, I'm going to be honest; like, it has a lot to do with the fire, uh, losing everything I own in the fire, right. I'm still dealing with the you know, that happened just a couple of days after we closed the case. Um, So so it was like getting past one thing and moving to another and also dealing with a lot of issues like with domestic abuse and domestic violence. And that's that's the first that I have actually come out and said that. Um, So (laughs) it's, you know, I'm working on my bravery with it. So I think the closer I can get to removing myself emotionally, um, so I'm just kind of taking a break from writing right now, but I will revisit it at some point.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah for anyone who you you're listening, who, um, isn't aware, uh, in August of 2020, you lost your home and, and everything, um, pretty much in the, the holiday farm wildfire. Um, and you've kind of had to build back up again a- after that, uh, um, which is, uh, I mean, yeah. When I say that you learn in heavy metal headbang, all of the things that you've gone through, um, it's a lot, uh, and it is. it's it's uh, amazing that you've been able to to write about it. It's uh, amazing all the work that I see you do in terms of uh, PR and and online and. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, amazing to be able to have this conversation with you and, and, and talk to you, all, uh, about all of it. Um, I really, I really appreciate you being here, Melissa.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate all the time and effort you took to read the book and ask the questions. I think there are really fantastic questions and it's, it's been a lot of fun chatting.
0: Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you very much for saying that. And so for, uh, comic book Yeti and the, uh, cryptid creator corner i am uh, jimmy gasparo and i just want to thank melissa mazaros uh for her time i want everyone to go out get heavy metal headbang and then come back and tell uh melissa and then tell me how much you enjoyed it and um what a fantastic read it was and how incredible melissa is to be writing about all these difficult things that she has gone through and that where she is now and um yeah thank you very much melissa thank you. All right, um, have uh, have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you next time. It's a weird way to end a podcast, but you know what are you gonna do? It's my podcast. Good night. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe,
1: all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.